This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of hamstring injuries from the knee and sports section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Hamstring injuries most commonly occur at the myotendinous junction in running athletes as a result of sudden hip flexion and knee extension. Diagnosis can be made clinically with ecchymosis in the posterior thigh, tenderness over the hamstring muscles, and avoidance of knee extension. Diagnosis can be confirmed with MRI. Treatment is generally conservative with rest, ice, and protected weight-bearing. Multiple tendon involvement or bony avulsion may require operative management. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidents, hamstring injuries make up 30% of new lower extremity injuries in athletes. There has been an annual increase of 4% that has been noted in soccer players over the last 15 years or so. In terms of demographics, hamstring injuries are most commonly seen in rapid acceleration sports, for example, soccer, track and field, and football. In terms of anatomic location, hamstring injuries can take place at the myotendinous junction, as well as avulsion of the ischial tuberosity. With respect to the myotendinous junction, this is the most common site of rupture in adults, and often occurs during sprinting. Avulsion of the ischial tuberosity is less common and is seen in skeletally immature patients, and in fact, hamstring injuries make up 10% of all pelvis avulsion fractures in the skeletally immature. Note that hamstring avulsion of the ischial tuberosity can be seen in water skiers. Risk factors for hamstring injuries include previous hamstring injury, which increases the risk of re-injury by a factor of 6, and know that previous injury leads to formation of weakened scar tissue, lowering the threshold to recurrent injury. Other risk factors include inadequate warm-up, strength imbalance, meaning hamstring to quadriceps ratio is less than 0.6, hamstring strength difference with the contralateral leg that is greater than 10 to 15%, reduced hip extension, and leg length differences, as the shorter leg will have tighter hamstrings. Moving on to etiology, with respect to pathophysiology, the mechanism of injury of hamstring injuries can be intramuscular and musculotendinous injuries, which most often occur during the sudden takeoff phase of running. Another possible mechanism of injury is a proximal hamstring avulsion, which occurs as a result of hip flexion and knee extension. This is specifically an eccentric contraction of the hamstring at the end of the swing phase when the muscle fibers are at maximal elongation. In terms of the pathobiology of hamstring injuries, satellite cells play a role in muscle healing following muscle injury. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. The hamstrings are composed of four muscles, the semimembranosus, the semitendinosus, and the biceps femoris, which are further subdivided into the long head of the biceps femoris and the short head of the biceps femoris. As far as the origin of the hamstrings, all of the muscles originate on the ischial tuberosity except the short head of the biceps femoris. The short head originates from the linea aspera on the femur. Note that the semimembranosus has the most lateral attachment. In terms of insertion, the semimembranosus inserts on the posterior aspect of the medial tibial condyle. The semitendinosus inserts on the supramedial tibial shaft within the pes anserinus. The biceps femoris long head inserts on the fibular head, and the biceps femoris short head has many insertions, like the fibular head, the biceps femoris long head, and the lateral knee capsule. In terms of innervation, the tibial branch of the sciatic nerve innervates the semimembranosus, the semitendinosus, and the long head of the biceps femoris. The common perineal branch of the sciatic nerve innervates the short head of the biceps femoris. The blood supply to the hamstring includes the inferior gluteal artery and the profunda femoral artery. 
Other important things to know about hamstring anatomy is that the hamstring origin on the ischial tuberosity is approximately 6 centimeters proximal to the inferior border of the overlying gluteus maximus. And know that the sciatic nerve is 1.2 centimeters from the lateral bony aspect of the hamstring origin. In terms of biomechanics, the hamstrings cross and act upon two joints, the hip and the knee, except the short head, which only crosses the knee joint. Now let's go over the classification of hamstring injuries. And the one to know is the hamstring tear MRI classification, which is divided into three grades. Grade 1 corresponds to a T2 hyperintense signal about a tendon or muscle without fiber disruption. Grade 2 is characterized by a T2 hyperintense signal around and within a tendon slash muscle with fiber disruption less than half the tendon slash muscle width. And grade 3 is characterized by tendon slash muscle fiber disruption greater than half its tendon slash muscle width. Now let's talk about the presentation of hamstring injuries. These patients will have a history of sudden pain in the posterior thigh during running, kicking, or jumping activity. These patients will occasionally report that a pop is felt. Common symptoms include posterior thigh pain, hamstring tightness, and pain with sitting in the setting of proximal avulsions. On physical exam, inspection may reveal ecchymosis in the posterior thigh. This is most commonly seen in proximal avulsions or high-grade myotendinous tears. On palpation, these patients may have a palpable mass in the middle one-third of the posterior thigh, which corresponds to a myotendinous rupture. These patients may also have tenderness to palpation in the ischial tuberosity, the myotendinous junction, as well as distal tenderness insertions. In terms of gait, patients with hamstring injuries will have a stiff-legged gait, as they are avoiding knee and hip flexion. In terms of motion assessment, patients with hamstring injuries will have a decreased popliteal angle. This is measured by flexing the hip to 90 degrees with the knee flexed to 90 degrees and then slowly extending the knee. The knee angle where posterior thigh pain is felt is compared to the uninjured leg. In terms of motor assessment, these patients will typically have weak hamstring strength. So while prone, knee flexion strength is measured with the knee at 90 degrees of flexion, and this is compared to the contralateral side. On neurovascular exam, these patients may have perineal nerve weakness, which will manifest with foot drop, etc. In terms of provocative tests, the following tests are positive for hamstring tendinopathy or strain if the patient feels pain. The ones to know include the Peranin orava test, in which the heel is placed on an elevated surface and the patient reaches for the toes. This has a sensitivity of 0.76 and a specificity of 0.82. The bent knee stretch test is done with the patient's supine, and the hip and knee are maximally flexed and the knee is slowly passively extended. The sensitivity is 0.84, and the specificity is 0.87. Finally, the modified bent knee stretch test is done with the patient supine, and the hip and the knee are maximally flexed, and then the knee is rapidly fully extended. The sensitivity is 0.89, and the specificity is 0.91. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP pelvis, as well as an AP and lateral of the femur. As far as findings, radiographs may show bony avulsion off of the ischial tuberosity. Moving on to MRI, this is indicated for the evaluation of the insertion site and quantifying the number of involved tendons and degree of tendon retraction. An MRI can also be used to evaluate the sciatic nerve location in chronic cases. MRI findings may show avulsion off the ischial tuberosity. Tendinopathy will be seen as increased signal intensity in T1-weighted images, and partial tears will have increased signal intensity on T2-weighted images. Moving on to diagnosis, the diagnosis of hamstring injuries is confirmed by history, physical exam, and MRI. 
Moving on to the treatment of hamstring injuries, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management can include rest, ice, NSAIDs, protected weight-bearing for four weeks followed by stretching and strengthening, and possibly a PRP injection. So rest, ice, NSAIDs, protected weight-bearing for four weeks followed by stretching and strengthening is indicated for most hamstring injuries as well as all single tendon tears. Other indications include two tendon tears with less than two centimeters of retraction, rupture at the myotendinous junction, and in less active patients and those with significant medical comorbidities. In terms of outcomes, non-operative management takes up to six weeks to heal and make sure patients only return when strength is 90% of the contralateral side to avoid further injury. PRP injection is indicated for acute hamstring strains in high-level athletes. As far as outcomes, there are some low-level studies that have shown earlier return to play by three to five days in NFL players. Operative options include tendon repair and ORIF. Tendon repair is indicated in the setting of proximal avulsion ruptures, partial avulsion that has failed non-operative management for six months, that is, these patients will have persistent symptoms. Other indications include two tendons with at least greater than two centimeters of retraction in young active patients, and tendon repair is also indicated for three tendon tears. As far as outcomes, there is 80% return to pre-injury level slash sports at six months. However, keep in mind there are high levels of complications with surgery and up to 23% in some studies. There is a higher complication rate with repair of chronic cases compared to acute, which is defined as less than six weeks old. ORIF is indicated in bony avulsions with greater than 2 centimeters of displacement, as well as chronic symptomatic bony avulsions. As far as outcomes, union rates after ORIF vary across studies. Now let's talk about some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. So starting with rest, ice, NSAIDs, protected weight-bearing for four weeks followed by stretching and strengthening, modalities that have shown benefits includes massage, ultrasound, and electrical stimulation. As far as protected weight-bearing, most studies state four weeks, but should be extended if the patient is still significantly symptomatic. As far as stretching and strengthening, as symptoms resolve, abdominal, hip, and quadriceps muscles should be added to the hamstring strengthening program to prevent re-injury. Hamstrings should be strengthened to correct any hamstring quadriceps strength imbalance. As far as injury prevention, the Nordic hamstring exercise is when the athlete kneels while the heels are held on the ground by an assistant, and the athlete then leans forward until they are prone and then returns to the original upright position. This has been shown to reduce injuries by 50 to 70% in some studies. Another injury prevention technique is isolated targeting of specific hamstring muscles. Know that the long head of the biceps femoris and the semimembranosus are more active during hip extension. The semitendinosus and short head of the biceps femoris is more active during knee flexion. Moving on to PRP injection, the recommendation is to administer PRP within 24 to 48 hours of acute injury. Ultrasound-guided injection is recommended. Moving on to tendon repair, in terms of positioning, this is done prone with the leg free so the knee can be flexed to relieve hamstring tension. The approach is a transverse incision over the gluteal crease. This can be extended distally in a T configuration for large retracted tears. The hamstring fascia is typically intact and know that a vertical fascial incision will often lead to encountering a hematoma or fluid collection. Also remember that the sciatic nerve runs on average 1.2 centimeters lateral to the most lateral aspect of the ischial tuberosity. As far as the technique for tendon repair, know that the ischium insertion site should be scraped with a periosteal elevator or curette to improve the healing environment. Avoid a bird to decrease the risk to the sciatic nerve. 
Repair to the ischial tuberosity with the use of multiple suture anchors, specifically four to six suture anchors, with the knee flexed. An allograft bridge may be needed in severely chronic cases when hamstrings are not able to be reapproximated to the tuberosity. Achilles allograft has shown comparable results to acute repairs in small studies. As far as postoperative protocol, patients are typically made partial weight-bearing for four to six weeks with the knee flexed to 40 degrees. A knee brace or a hip brace can be used. An ORIF will have the same approach as for a tendon repair. The technique will involve direct reduction followed by fixation with multiple partially or fully threaded screws with washers. You can supplement with suture anchors and or interference screws. Now let's talk about some complications after hamstring injuries. We'll go over recurrence, perineal nerve injury, sciatic nerve injury, hamstring syndrome, and ischial tuberosity nonunion. So starting with recurrence, as far as incidence, this is the most common complication as 12 to 31% of patients sustain repeat injury. Risk factors include hamstring weakness, hamstring quad imbalance, and premature return to activity. Moving on to perineal nerve injury, risk factors include distal non-insertional hamstring injuries. As far as treatment, this is usually self-resolving. Moving on to sciatic nerve injury, the incidence is 8% of surgical cases. Risk factors include chronic cases with scarring of the nerve to the hamstring. Treatment is nerve exploration. Moving on to hamstring syndrome, this is localized posterior buttock and ischial tuberosity pain secondary to non-operatively treated hamstring avulsion injuries. The treatment is surgical release and sciatic nerve decompression. Finally, moving on to ischial tuberosity nonunion, risk factors include bony avulsion fractures greater than 2 centimeters retracted treated non-operatively. The treatment will be ORIF plus or minus bone graft. Now, let's end this review session talking about prognosis of hamstring injuries. So hamstring injuries can be very unpredictable injuries with variable return to sport. Overall, 84% of patients recover pre-injury strength and 89% recover pre-injury endurance. Poor prognostic variables include severely retracted tears and chronic tears with scarring to the sciatic nerve. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads... Which of the following most accurately describes the primary role of satellite cells? And the choices are 1. To act as an intermediary in the cell signaling pathway for bone remodeling. 2. To regenerate skeletal muscle after muscle injury. 3. To regenerate periosteum after periosteal damage in a child. 4. To bind chemotherapeutic ligands in the treatment of lymphoma of bone. And 5. To express high amounts of sonic hedgehog surface protein. The correct answer to this question is 2, to regenerate skeletal muscle after muscle injury. So the primary role of satellite cells is to regenerate skeletal muscle after muscle injury. To quickly review, satellite cells, also termed muscle satellite cells, are a population of cells within muscle who sit relatively dormant until muscle injury occurs. Satellite cells are then responsible for producing new muscle and new satellite cells in response to the injury. Noonan et al. review muscle strain injury. They report that histologic studies have shown that muscle strain injuries cause a disruption of muscle fibers near the myotendinous junction. The fibers do not tear at the junction, but rather at a short distance from it. Acutely, the injuries are characterized by disruption and some hemorrhage within the muscle. By day two, an inflammatory reaction is evident with the presence of edema and in inflammatory cells. By day seven, fibrous tissue has replaced the inflammatory reaction. 
Gates et al. refused muscle-derived stem cells, or MDSCs, and their role in muscle regeneration. They report one such cell is the satellite cell, which has long been recognized as a quiescent muscle progenitor cell. Following skeletal muscle injury, it divides and fuses with other progenitors to form myofibers. When stimulated with the appropriate growth factors in vitro, satellite cells have the capacity to differentiate down other lineages, such as osteoblastic, adipogenic, and chondrogenic cell lines. Morgan et al. report satellite cells are quiescent mononucleated myogenic cells located between the sarcolemma and the basement membrane of terminally differentiated muscle fibers. These are normally quiescent in adult muscle, but act as a reserve population of cells able to proliferate in response to injury and give rise to regenerated muscle and to more satellite cells. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, the osteoblast acts as an intermediary in the cell signaling pathway for bone remodeling. Answer 3, satellite cells are not involved in the regeneration of periosteum. Answer 4, satellite cells play no role in binding chemotherapeutic drugs. And finally, answer 5, sonic hedgehog surface protein is involved in limb bud generation. And moving on to the final question, concomitant flexion of the hip and extension of the knee is most likely to result in an injury to which structure? And the choices are 1, sartorius, 2, rectus femoris, 3, adductor magnus, 4, biceps femoris, and 5, tensor fasciolata. The correct answer to this question is 4, biceps femoris. So flexion of the hip and extension of the knee most likely would injure the hamstring. The hamstring is composed of the semimembranosus, semitendinosus, and biceps femoris, and all three components originate at the ischial tuberosity. The article by Orava et al. reviewed eight patients with proximal hamstring rupture and reported that there is an eccentric component to the injury with forceful contraction of the hamstring with simultaneous lengthening of the muscle with hip flexion and knee extension. The level 4 study by Klingale reviewed 11 patients treated operatively for proximal hamstring rupture and found 91% return of muscle strength postoperatively. That's all for this review about hamstring injuries. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.